most men don't even think about a prostate examination. They don't even know what a prostate is in most cases. It's only when you have a reason to go to the doctors for a prostate examination that most men go. There's no awareness, there's no real campaigns out there to say, you know, go and get yourself checked. The other side of that is when you've got symptoms, you're usually too late. You're then into advanced cancer. Welcome to the Needlefish Podcast. I'm Jim Firth. And I'm John Harland. Each episode, we will bring you practical wisdom and advice from experts from various fields and stories from extraordinary people. So we hope you enjoy our show. And if you do, please like, subscribe and share with your friends. Today's podcast, we are talking to Paul Sayer, founder and CEO of Prostate, a national charity that was set up by him following his diagnosis and treatment for prostate cancer. That's right. And also, we want to mention the prostate is spelt P-R-O-S-T-8. That signifies one in eight men with prostate cancer. So we'll go from his prognosis to his journey through setting up of prostate. We'll also talk about various types of treatment, treatments that are available on the NHS. And he also dives into some of the more cutting-edge treatments that are available as well. Yes, and he'll also give us some important reassuring messages about screening and how to cope with the anxiety that is associated with men and prostate cancer. There's also a degree of support information that's available. And if you're affected by anything in this podcast, you can go to his website, which is prostate. P-R-O-S-T and the number 8.org.uk Well, I think first of all, Paul, we want to say thank you very much for agreeing to do this because, you know, it's it's our inaugural episode and, you know, what you represent and what you've uh, put together as founder and CEO of Prostate Charity is is quite incredible, I think. And I think, you know, having spoken to you in the past and you know, heard a bit about your, your your journey. It's really important for people who are going through a very similar thing to understand what the options are. So thanks ever so much for doing this today. Really Quite appreciate welcome. it. Hopefully we can help someone. I've just got to, I've just got to actually say, I've, I'm going to declare an interest here because, Jim, I mean, you know, I know... Paul quite yeah, well we're quite, we, we've known each other for, for, for many years so just want to establish that relationship even though I mean I, I followed your journey from way back yep. and I know I know Jim has, 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 has known you for about a, a year and a half now as well so it's great it's great that you've come in and we can talk yeah, about good. your it's journey good to have that familiarity yeah let's tell everybody let's take you back to what your kind of backstory is a little bit with with what you used to do and what you do now and and and, and add a little bit of background of yeah I guess um, I've been involved in the charity sector over 20 years um, working with some of the biggest charities and some of the smallest yeah that journey um, has taught me a whole lot of ways to raise money to hold events to assist and help people along the way yeah but oddly enough, um, before my prostate cancer experience, I'd kind of dipped out of the charity sector for a short while yeah. and had worked in my son's business, a technology-based business, to, um, in a commercial capacity. Yeah. And I have to say, about the time that 
my prostate cancer came along, I was about ready for going back into the charity sector again. So because you used to be involved in event planning and everything. You did some quite did. prestigious events, didn't you? Yep, the um, Jules Holland concerts in the park in yeah. Southend-on-Sea, wow. Rat Pack in the park, um, Chefs for Heroes for Help for Heroes at Guildhall in London. Yeah, That was quite a major event with over £50,000 raised. Yeah. Worked for Mild May, the HIV and AIDS charity, for five years, organising events and also lots and lots of local charities. Paul, I'm really curious, what, what got you to the doctor in the first place? Right, so um, I have a friend, a very good friend of mine, Steve, who had a very bad experience with prostate cancer 15 years ago. Yeah. And he'd sort of made it a personal crusade to nag everybody that came into his uh, circle of influence yeah. to get their prostate checked, as long as they were in that sort of age group. And uh, I was one of the top of his list, and it was a constant thing. Mm. So in 2015, just one Saturday, I was attending the doctors for an unrelated issue. Having seen Steve the night before, Mm. it was fresh in my mind about his nagging. So I mentioned to the doctor, I'm just past 60, you know, is it worth having a prostate exam? He asked me the usual questions, you know, do I get up in the night, do I have problems weeing, those sort of things, which I didn't, had no symptoms at all. Mm. But to his credit, rather than as most GPs do, and say, come back when you've got some symptoms. He said, OK, we'll give you a check, which was quite a shock on the spur of the moment. I find it quite odd that, you know, there's not a specific age where, as a as a man, you would just get a prostate uh, call for an examination yep. anyway. You can, in law, ask for one um, after the age of 50. Right. If there's a, a, some mandate in law. That but there's no screening it. for it that there's you're no, aware of? No, no, no actual screening campaign, nothing like breast cancer. Wow. Prostate cancer is a good 15 years behind breast cancer in terms of screening. Gosh. There are some newer screening methods coming along, which will make this a bit, a bit easier. But at the moment, the, the screening for prostate cancer relies on a blood test, PSA test, mm. and um, a rectal examination, which aren't the easiest of things to do no. on the spur of the moment. Do you think that the actual initial examination the internal uh, test yep. by the doctor. Does you think that puts men off? Yeah, it does. It's just... Thinking about going yeah. for that test. Men aren't as um, familiar as, with those things as women are. Yeah, women sort of tend to go through pregnancy and yeah. a host of other things. So they tend to be a little bit more comfortable with those sort of examinations. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, th- I when, obviously when you, you had your diagnosis, it inspired me to go for one. And I think and I went for one. And in fact, I've had two. Since, since that time enjoyed them <laughs> one i did and one i i, I didn't but you know they are another story for another podcast <laughs> i wish the doctor had take, I'd taken him out for dinner first but, <laughs> but um yeah but um yeah but it, it's an interesting thing because yeah. at the end of the day uh you know if a man thinks right i'm going for a prostate exam and i think i'll well, okay, and he's, you're going to have your, uh, sort of an internal examination with the doctor's going to insert yeah. his, his finger mm. inside your rectum. That will put a lot of men off. It goes back a step further than that because most men don't even think about a prostate examination. They don't yeah. even know what a prostate is in most cases. I'm probably leaping ahead then. Yeah, well, no, you're, you're right. But the I'm answer right, to your yeah. question is, you know, it's, it's, it goes back a step further, really. It's only when... You have a reason to go to the doctors for a prostate examination that most men go. There's no awareness, there's no real campaigns out there to say, you know, go and get yourself checked, check the symptoms. And the the other side of that is when you've got symptoms, you're usually too late. You're then into advanced cancer. 
Yeah. Yeah. Prostate cancer develops and has two, three, four, five year cycle before it actually starts to develop into symptoms in a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, so going back to your prognosis, so yeah. you, you you obviously had that, that went through that process and. Yeah, well, I had the um, examination with the doctor on that day. As I say, he said there was a bit of hardness um, and a bit of swelling, but no more than he would put down to age. And that's inside? That was the internal examination, internal yeah. Exam, yeah. Um, they, you, you have a blood form and you go off and have a blood test as well at that point, but on that day it was the internal rectal examination. What, you, did, you, you said, what did you think, Paul, when, when he said there was you know, a bit of swelling and potentially...? Um, didn't really concern me. He no. sort of wasn't bothered, so I didn't take any real right. concern from it um as most doctors do they say right we'll, we'll keep an eye on you so every six months or so we'll have yeah. you in we'll give you a follow-up test and um see where things go but as we all know these things don't happen so, so did you have a psa test there i did well? yeah it was yeah. only three point something so it was quite it, over three and over 60 they will sometimes have a look but yeah. i was in that sort of low threes with no symptoms whatsoever so they were quite happy to as they said, monitor it. And that was a blood test, was it? That's a PSA yeah, blood test, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's a prostate-specific antigen, which is a measure of a hormone that the prostate creates. Yeah. And the more aggravated the prostate is, the more of this hormone it actually generates. So that's yeah. why the PSA test rises when you've got issues with your prostate. Yeah, so but it's not always. You, you can have a, prostate, a PSA test that's high, and it's just... Uh, you know inflamed prostate or an infection or something else it's not always it's got to be said it's not always cancer in fact it's less chance of being cancer than anything else so at that point you must have felt quite comfortable that okay there's a there's probably a bit as you know a bit age. Of our age age just, what I put so down to, when, yeah. just forwarding on a little bit further you were obviously put in a position with the doctor turned around and said actually you know you have got prostate cancer that must have been a that was a while on i mean the the follow-up test never happened so 2015 was this first test none of the follow-up tests happened by pure chance again 2018 i'll be back to the doctors probably the next time i went mm. again unrelated had a female doctor who i happened to mention that i was scheduled to have some follow-up tests mm along the way and they hadn't happened so i got the usual gp you know are you going up in the night to wee have you got any issues have you got any discomfort no well then don't worry, worry come, come back here when when you've got problems mm. i'd done enough research at that point to know that if it was prostate cancer and i had symptoms i was going to be fairly advanced so i wanted to have a follow-up check at that point so i was, I was quite insistent that she did do something so you you took your own health into your own hands basically yeah. and so that otherwise you know i'd have been what? fobbed off again yeah 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 that's interesting isn't it it's well it. we both said that didn't we we, we when yeah. we were, talk, were talking prior to to talking to you we were both intrigued how you made that sort of you took charge of your own health and how you made the decisions you did yeah i suppose you talked about research there paul when after the first research uh, i I loosely looked after the first 2015 examination i sort of loosely looked on the nhs website and got a bit of knowledge about was this an age-related swelling yeah what would happen next if it wasn't Mm -hmm. and then forgot about it it was sort of gone so i carried that with me to to the second doctor's appointment effectively so i wouldn't say at that point i was knowledgeable yeah but i just carried a bit of knowledge you, you took charge of your your health yeah. and said actually you know what this is this needs investigating yeah. further and of course i've got steve nagging me in the background still to yeah to get something yeah. done so so anyway this doctor under duress said that she couldn't do the rectal examination she'd have to get another doctor to do it yeah so i had to go out make a new appointments um she did give me a blood test form why is that can i sorry I, well, she, her her 
reasoning was that her fingers aren't long enough to reach the prostates, but that's just out of it, just just for yeah. for factual information. My second prostate exam was mm. done by a female doctor. Yeah, because I, I went I went in and said uh, for unrelated um, um, matter. Yeah, and she was a locum, and I said I, I think I yeah, I want to book her another prostate exam. She said to me. Well, I'll have it now, and I was, uh, you know, I thought, oh, okay, so yeah. I, you know, I was quite happy. Yeah. So it, well, it's not, it's not, it's not a sort of like a thing that you have to. It's not a male sort of female. Not, not to my knowledge, no, 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 no. 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 We have several men who've got female GPs, and yeah, you know, they've been getting regular checkups and such like without any problems. But this GP decided to refer me to another yeah. male GP in the practice. Yeah, and I. Because I hadn't got any symptoms, I nearly didn't bother making that appointment, I have to say, and that's how easy it is to, to Gosh, miss these I'm, things. I bet you're glad you did that. Yeah, and I yeah. just on the way out, it, I happened to know the receptionist at the doctor's and it was saying, hello, goodbye. Yeah. And made me go, oh, look, yeah, I'm supposed to make another appointment, so mm. let's do it. So I, I made that appointment, came back a few days later, saw another male GP. He gloved and lubed and did his work yeah. and um, said, yeah, there's a bit of grittiness there now that wasn't there before. Um, according to the, your records. So we need to take a look. It's time to have a look at it. So within 10 days, I was at Southend Hospital having a biopsy and scans to Gosh. see what it was. So they, they moved quite fast at that point. Yeah. And so what was the patient journey through the NHS like? Right, well, in that sort of 10 days before going to Southend Hospital, I'd sort of then done some research yeah. um, because I do like to sort of know what I'm facing before I go into these things not just in medical terms, but in most things in life. So I'd researched what the, like, the outcome was likely to be, what the treatments were likely to be, what the journey was likely to be, the yeah. timescales, mm. and, of course, what the after-effects might be. Mm. So it can be quite scary. I mean, the thing is not to just use the internet and Google mm. prostate cancer. You can come up with all sorts of horrors. Yeah. But it's to stick with the, you know, the well-known charities and the NHS websites, basically. They're the ones to... So if there's somebody listening right now who's... Um, who wants more information, where, where would you point them to? Um, NHS away? website. Um, there's a brilliant website called Prostate Matters. Um, we work very closely with them. They're one of the best resources online for accurate prostate information. Our own website at prostate.org.uk has got a lot of information on this. But in reality, get, a bit of, get armed with some information and see your GP. Yeah. So having sort of taken all that uh, some time to to research with the options, what made you lean towards the treatment you eventually had? I'd, I said I'd sort of printed off some information, carried it with me to the hospital to say that you know I was going to be facing radiotherapy, surgery, hormone treatments, mm. and I found that HIFU, um, high intensity focus ultrasound, was a newish treatment that was coming up. Plus there were some very clever. Uh, biological treatments that were in the in the wings as well. Yeah. So, I, I <clears throat> excuse me. I went to the hospital, had the tests, had the biopsies, came back for the results, and was immediately told, right, okay, surgery, seven to ten days, or radiotherapy, and so did you have between a, those? Did you have a consultant that was assigned to you? I, I had a consultant, but was on it, the day you, I was given those the the result that I had got prostate cancer and what my options were it was the um, cancer nurse that was doing that the consultant wasn't available that day so how did did that make you feel that's not that's not too unusual right and she was very knowledgeable give her a due yeah and very knowledgeable 
so she imparted the news that I'd got prostate cancer, which I'd kind of accepted, as you do. Yeah. By that time, yeah, I expected it. And How are you feeling about that, uh, Paul? Cause it's, <laughs> um, it's big news. I'm a funny character insofar as I look more towards how I'm going to get round it rather than what's going to happen to me as a result of it. Yeah. So that's why I had that bit of research, really. So I was looking to see... So again, you're taking charge of your own... Yeah, I guess so. ...your own health. Yeah, I hadn't realised it was out. that way. But yeah, you're right when you say that. I suppose I had. Yeah. So um, I, I mentioned, you know, the HIFU to the, the nurse and she said, oh, no, no, it's, it's just a trial. It's only on trial. It's not suitable for your type of cancer. But you'll be coming back and talking to the consultants, so they'll tell you. So then I had an appointment about 10 days later. I saw both the surgical consultant and the radio radio consultant. Are these urologists? Yeah, they're, they're urology departments. Right. They specialise in urology side of things. So yeah. one, was, one was the surgical side and one was the radiotherapy side. I spoke to both about the HIFU. Both were of the opinion that it was a, a trial thing. It wasn't really suited for my cancer. I did kind of know slightly better than that. So they were sort of pressurising, and there is a pressure on the day to say, right, which way are you going to go? Do you want radiotherapy or do you want surgery? That's it. That's the yeah. tools they had in their toolbox. That's and that, what was, I was, that was all you were being offered? That's all I was being offered, yeah. And I was being and pushed, so, pushed away from anything outside what they actually had on the premises. Right, OK. That's I mean, it weird. takes a lot of courage yeah. to, to actually think, actually, you know, I, I don't actually trust what you're telling me. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't a case of not trusting what they told me. I'm sure that if I'd gone for surgery or radiotherapy, it would have done the job. yeah. But I was more concerned about the lifestyle implications. Yeah, maybe trust was the wrong word, but I, I, yeah. I, it, it's just having the faith in, in, it is, in the yeah. decisions you made. Yeah. And when, when I was told that high food wasn't suited to my condition and that it was only a trial procedure, I had knowledge of my own that it, well, it was gone beyond that. It was an NHS-approved procedure, but I, I couldn't argue with these guys because they were the experts. Yeah, so that's, that's it. I took the option, I went for radiotherapy because seven to ten days for surgery gave me no time at all to do anything other than yeah. Except my fate in that way. So I took the radiotherapy because that gave me six months of hormone treatment yeah. before the treatment started itself. Yeah. And that bought me the time I needed to go off and have a look around, do a bit of window shopping. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's when you've got these people who are experts and, and you know, potentially an authority and, and who, who know better than you, it takes a, some strength of character to say, hang on a minute, I've done a bit of research here. Mm. Not sure this is the way I want to go. What what did they tell you about the disease, Paul? Um, they lay out the path of progression for it in some ways. You know, they say that where I was sitting at that point in time, they use a, a score called a Gleason score, which measures both the um, size and distribution of the cancer cells and the aggression of the cancer cells. So I was a Gleason 4 plus 3, which is a 7, and that's where you would then be looking at having treatment as opposed to watching and waiting if you come up as a six they'll quite often do watch and wait basically mm. and see where it progresses yeah. because of the lifestyle implications at a six you know it's quite low it could go for many many years whereas if you if you're seven or an eight and you start stepping into the treatment pathway the lifestyle implications are quite often pronounced right what so, are they um incontinence mm. um it can be temporary it can be over a year or two after the treatment or it can be permanent with um surgery um in the early days in the early days sort of when, when i was looking back in 2018 robotic surgery was just about getting established yeah robotic surgery oddly enough is slightly better in terms of nerve sparing the prostate has two bands of nerves running around the outside both yeah. sides that control your erectile function and the 
Google continents, basically. Yeah. So the robotic can be better for nerve sparing surgery, as they call it. Right. So that was just on the on the horizon at that point. Um, the alternative was radiotherapy, which is five days a week for five weeks, oh. which is quite debilitating over yeah, that period yeah. of time. Plus, um, just by its nature, radiotherapy does damage on the way in and damage on the way out. You know, it's, mm. it focuses at the point of treatment, but it does do harm to, to surrounding tissues. So ultimately, the the treatments that you were offered, I mean, were potentially damaging. Yeah. Uh, in terms of you know your life going forward, I mean, you're a fit and healthy, otherwise fit and healthy. I was at that point, sixty yeah. year old bloke, and um, and and surgery or radio treatment would would have potentially damaging effects would, on yeah. on erectile dysfunction and also incontinence potentially. Yeah, it would. What sort of numbers of people have incontinence and the the percentages are. Quite high immediately after the um, point of treatment. So yeah. um, it can be 70, 80% wow. who will have significant leakage um, or and sexual dysfunction. So and it, in a lot of cases, it does come down quite rapidly. Mm. Uh, but you, you'll still end up with about 60% of those people will have some sort of ongoing condition. And a high percentage of those will have permanent incontinence. Gosh. And quite often will need assistance with uh, sexual function. Right. So fast-forwarding a little bit, so you, you do eventually get to to have high food. Right, but well, there's a step before that. I, I sort of did some more research after I left the hospital. I was put onto hormone therapy, right. um, which I took, as you it's wise to do. Yeah. Um, hormone therapy itself is, is another option for treatment, right. and that has quite significant side effects for a lot of people. Well, like what? It, for debilitating fatigue. Okay. It's odd you have one tablet, bioclutamide, which is the actual hormone. Mm. They give you another tablet um, once a week that you take, which is supposed to negate the side effects. Right. That actually created more side effects for me than the main tablet did. Oh, really? Really strange. I had to time that for a Sunday morning so I could recover from it enough to be back at work on Mondays. Oh, it was, that, it was, really? That's, that's quite, yeah, some people find it really debilitating. What sort of side effects were you suffering? Just tiredness, um, achy bones, um, your sexual function drops off a bit, you start to put on weight. It's it, pretty unpleasant it, it, it kills testosterone off, so basically you can start to develop breasts and there's a whole host of bits and pieces you don't particularly want if you can avoid them. So but it bought, it bought you a bit of time. It did, it bought that time. So I, I did some research, I started writing to trials that I could find that looked more appetising than what I was being offered, yeah. and, and I pursued the HIFU route. And I found a consultant at Imperial College London who was doing a big trial on HIFU. So I made contact with him and he came back gave him his due and replied and said that the trial he was doing was for people with advanced cancer mm. um, so I wouldn't be suited to it but it was being offered as an NHS treatment at the hospital by Professor Hashim Ahmed this is unbelievable and, yeah. and this and this obviously wasn't made available to you in fact you were shut yeah. down by the the traditional yeah. doctors who wanted to use radiotherapy and and uh, surgery yeah. that's why, their specialisations that's what they do they but, they I was going to say that my question really is: Are they are they married to this because they've invested? The NHS have invested so much money and time in equipment, radiotherapy equipment, Very much robotic so. equipment. Yeah. So therefore, the 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 will to look elsewhere yeah. potentially is is not going to be there because they've got their return on investment to. Yeah. To, to bring in. Exactly, you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah, there's a fortune been spent on upgrading radiotherapy suites 
around, around the whole UK, which is excellent news yeah. because it's used for more than just prostate cancer. So, to what degree of hostility did you did you encounter from from the NHS, from the establishment, from the, the establishment? Yeah, one of the two consultants that I saw when I went to get my initial options was almost aggressive in terms of the fact that I dared to challenge. Yeah, and I found that quite disturbing. Really, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he was. He was annoyed that I was daring to yeah. offer something other than that he was actually recommending for me. Yeah. So th- there was there was an element. Hostility would probably be a strong word, but there was an annoyance. Well, you, yeah, I mean, you felt it was a bit, a bit host- yeah, hostile. I, did, I yeah. mean, then it must have been quite awkward. Yeah, it, it was, but I prepared myself for selecting the hormones to buy the time yeah. to get me out of that room, to get me able to then explore my options properly. Yeah. So I wasn't too worried at that point. I had got a plan B. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, what point did you meet the professor? Right, I wrote the first consultant who, who suggested the professor. I then wrote to the professor's secretary, yeah, a lovely lady who's not, who's not there. She's gone back to Australia now. Oh, which is she? A lovely, yeah, because I, I think I met her. You did actually. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, you yeah. did. That's right. Yes, yeah. at our parliamentary launch. Yeah. So, I wrote to her. She said, "Yes, I'll set you up an appointment with the professor. Just get me a referral letter from your GP." So I went back to my GP. Got some resistance on that as well, yeah. but got past that with a bit of insistence. And the first, I had a, an appointment back to see the professor, and I must say, the first day I met him with my wife Cindy, we went up to Imperial College, and it was it was such a different experience. It was almost like a private hospital, mm. and some. You know, we we were in the waiting room, and this man came out and called our names, took us off to the the room, sat us down, introduced himself, told us what he was about, what his specialisations were, and then pulled my um, scans up on screen. And straight away he said, right, you are a perfect candidate for IFU, and this is the reasons why, blah, 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 and explained everything very clearly. And, you, and you'd been told previously that, that you, was, you weren't yeah. a good candidate for I was even told it wasn't even available in the NHS. So, you know, it was... The, I, th- I don't think there's any ill will no. in what I was told. I think there's, there is a, a bit of ignorance. Lack of knowledge. Yeah, these guys are absolutely amazing at what they do. Yeah. You know, they're radiotherapists, the surgeons. If you've got advanced cancer... You need these guys, yeah. and what they do is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But there's just this lack of knowledge that they they can refer people at the early stages, such as myself, off for better treatments. Yeah. So you again, you took your health into your own hands, and you did some research and yep. and found Professor Hashim, Hashim Ahmed. Yeah. You know, he, he he just turned out to be such a genuinely nice person, and made me feel totally at ease, totally comfortable. Gave me a pathway, told me what the outcomes would be. And obviously, I opted to accept him as a consultant to treat me. So, what was the? What, can you give us a brief outline of how the treatment went? In yep. What was the treatment? It was, as I explained earlier, surgery would have been three days in hospital and a yeah. big recovery time. Radiotherapy would have been five weeks, five days a week, and all the consequences of that. Yeah. Hormone therapy carries its own problems. HIFU basically is um, using the same principles as you would have for a baby scan. Yeah. So it's an ultrasound device. Yeah. Ultrasound is completely harmless yeah. to the body, otherwise they wouldn't use it to scan babies. What they do, they've done with this, is they've created a delivery device which has got four heads firing a small beam of ultrasound. Each one totally harmless, can pass through and do no harm whatsoever. But where they meet, they generate about 60 to 80 degrees of heat and they can adjust that level of heat and size. So they, they insert the device in your rear end under general anaesthetic. And I have since, actually since starting the charity, sat in on other procedures. Oh, really? So I can actually say a bit more about what I was going through now, if you like. And yeah. it's like a space invader. So they've got a computer screen. 
There's um, a live ultrasound showing the scan of the prostate. There's the MRI scans you've had previously are overlaid on that, so mm. they get a really clear image. It's computer-controlled, so if the body's moving and the prostate moves as your internal organs do, it will adjust All right. automatically. And uh, so you see a grid which uh, shows the tumour in various 3D levels, um, height, depth and width. And the uh, HIFU just picks away at this tumour, taking a little margin around the outside as well, just to make sure any rogue cells are mopped up. And, how, and, and that's a one-off, is it? One-off. You go in for the day. Um, one day you have an enema in the morning when you arrive, you have pre-general anaesthetic yeah. and then they take you down, you have the full anaesthetic. You're in the in the surgery for say to up to three hours. Mm. Come back out into recovery. There's a catheter inserted to because the um, by the process itself of the burning of your prostate, it causes the prostate to inflame. Yeah, yeah. And that would press on your urethra, which would cause yeah, yeah. urination problems. So they yeah. put a catheter in. So I came out on the night. Felt a bit sick from the anaesthetic, but no after effects from the actual operation. Yeah. Came home on the train which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it was just hard work. I yeah. <laughs> just had a general anaesthetic and sitting with a new catheter in, etc., etc. So that's one thing I'd never recommend anyone to do. That was, that was my learning curve. And I slept fairly well that night. Cautionary three days of antibiotics. I was sitting at my desk working at home the next day, right. my laptop. Catheter came out after a week and I got on with my life. What was the next step after you thought to yourself... I'm going to start a charity. I need to tell people about this. Yeah, I guess, um, as I said earlier, I was looking at getting back into the charity arena again anyway. Yeah. And I just was so impressed with how this whole thing had gone. And having been back and seen the professor after my operation and spoken to him and and understood his frustrations, he said he regularly banged his head against the brick wall just trying to get the NHS to say, look, guys, this is less harmful in terms of lifestyle it's darn sight cheaper to deliver. The aftercare costs are practically zero. Mm. Um, you know, when you consider against incontinence pads for life, maybe, and Viagra and a whole host of other. Yeah. So just just on that, Paul, I'm I'm curious as to why this is not a, a, an intervention that's offered more widely on the that NHS. Was, you know, is it, too, yeah. you know, it's it's nice approved, isn't yeah. it? It is. It's on the horizon, it's on the radar, and it's starting to get some awareness now in the NHS. But I've been running the charity for two years in this month, March, and we still haven't got the NHS to deploy one additional machine into... There's, there are three machines, basically, on the NHS that are available to NHS, mm. all in London or the South. Yeah. And I'll jump, I'll jump ahead because we'll come to the charity, I'm sure, but... The people we've helped with the charity, we've brought in from all over the country, literally from out of Scottish Islands to Liverpool, Manchester, Bolton. The, you know, the people we've brought in have travelled yeah. a long, long, long way to get this treatment. Yeah. Mm. And it's not right. It shouldn't be the case. So, so going back just yeah. to the charity, obviously you spoke to the professor yeah. and said, look, I want to... This is what I want to do. I want yeah. to do. So he obviously yeah. was... I went away, yeah. put a package together, a plan, yeah. which was an early plan. You know, it sort of changes as you go. Yeah. But I put that plan together and then went back through his secretary and said, like, right, I want to come see the professor. It's nothing to do with me. My prostate's not even on the agenda. Yeah. I've got something I need to talk to him about. And it, yeah, fine. So how do you Bring start me. a charity then, Paul? Yeah. That's not easy. <laughs> I have helped several other charities start up in the past, so I yeah. have got some experience of it. Yeah. But 
Um, so you knew it was a tough, a tough I knew gig. It was a tough, a tough gig. Yeah. But also, the charity commission had really toughened up the rules from the last one that I'd done, mm. and I was quite shocked at how tight it is. Because you get. did it really quickly, didn't we, you? The, it was fortunately the knowledge of having done it before. Yeah. But I, I feel so sorry for some some charities that are trying, to, you know, non-profits that are trying to get yeah. themselves charity status. It's so, so, so hard at the moment. You can understand why. You know, the, the Charity Commission wants to make sure that of course. charities are genuine. Bonafide. Bonafide. Yeah. But by the same measure, by being so strict, they are actually stopping a lot of very good causes becoming charitable. But, uh, but having been through uh, with another charity myself, the, the journey, you, yep. you need experts on board. Yeah. You need people to write that the, that form and 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 apply their knowledge and their experience to how it should be so should be uh, progressed. That's and, right. And 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 presented. So, you, but you did that, didn't you? So, what did was you? your what was your plan? How did you how did you figure out putting the plan together and what was the the aim of the charity? Um, well, in the early stages, the aim of the charity was to make sure that there was awareness of yeah. the fact that men have other options. You know, mm-hmm. I, I found out from you know a hard route that. I wasn't going to be given the facts that were available out there. I was going to be getting told what I went, they wanted to tell me, effectively. Yeah. So the first idea was to have a charity to create an awareness that there are better treatments out there and there may be more treatments than you're being told about. So mm. that was kind of the first plan. But speaking to the professor and, and starting to widen my circle of people that I, I was getting sympathy from, if you like, for the, for the idea within yeah. the industry. The problem they were going to have was we could make all the awareness in the world, but these two or three machines that were available to NHS just weren't going to cope with it. Okay. So we had to have a, another plan that was going to actually help us to get some of this equipment installed. Right. So the first idea was to campaign and pressurise the NHS and Parliament to decide to fund this as a you know, an NHS project which wasn't proving easy, and the more I researched it, I realised we were looking at years to get this anywhere near mm. what we wanted to have. So we then adapted the whole concept to be awareness, but also with the a plan to buy, donate and deploy. We want to do six full focal therapy suites into hospitals, strategic hospitals around the UK. Yeah. And how much are these make, suites to produce? Approximately half a million each to put in, yeah. which sounds like a lot of money, but it's not in NHS terms. So we're looking at about one and a half million pound cost for a robotic machine and a year's training on it for a okay. surgeon. Okay. Um, your radiotherapy suite, you can just work out you're into tens of millions of pounds to, to put one of those in. Plus, the um, aftercare is phenomenal on both those sides. Yeah. So half a million pounds and almost zero aftercare. Mm. And men going away with their lifestyle intact. Yeah. This was the thing. You know, it's, it's not just about saving money for NHS. It does save money for NHS, but it's lifestyle. It's that's the key. I mean, I, I, without getting too much detail, before I had my prostate treatment, I never go up in the night to wee, which mm. at sixty isn't bad. I still don't. Yeah, and at, you know, sixty-five now, and having gone through prostate cancer, that's something that I'm. I almost use as my my measuring stick. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, if, if men are out there listening to this, they, listening to you talk, uh, the, the option of high food treatment would be absolutely appealing to them because, yeah. you know, they think, well, actually, you know what, the worst case scenario, I've got that, that I've got the comfort of knowing that that's the treatment, that's the journey I want to yeah. take. You have to um, caveat that by saying this is for early stage and intermediate yeah, yeah. cancers, you know, there's, 
a lot of cancers, unfortunately, because of the nature of prostate cancer and the fact that by the time your symptoms appear, it can be quite advanced. Mm. So, you may, so big, you may not have HIFU as an option. A big takeaway message is... Early diagnosis and, and get screening. Check. Get a check, yeah, yeah. get yeah. found. And be insistent, you know, don't be fobbed off. Go in, be insistent. If you're over 50, you have a right to a, a PSA test. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, be forceful. And I guess... Where, where you want to get to as a charity is making sure that HIFU is on the agenda and not uh, sidelined in favour of um, the other therapies which are conventional, as it were. Exactly. Now, the, uh, the other therapies are essential. Um, the guys that deliver those are doing a fantastic job. They, yeah. they t- the, these um, more radical treatments tend to be the more radical diseases as well. So, you know, they're working with the harder end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, but no, HIFU needs to take its place on that spectrum yeah. at this moment in time. It's just not there. It needs to be an option. It does need to be an option, yeah. yes. It needs to be um, more awareness of the fact that it actually exists first and foremost, yeah. and then the efficacy of it, um, the awareness of that as well. So and people start to know to ask for it and to ask for it. And before that, uh, men need to get themselves checked in order to identify potential prostate cancer early yep. in order to take advantage of HIFU. That is exactly it. You need to be... Looking at your own prostate requirements, looking at your family members, you know, if you're a younger man, nag your dad. If you're, uh, you've got an uncle who's probably, looks like he might be in that sort of zone, nag your uncle. Just look at the other members of your family as well, it's not just about you. And what sort of, what sort of age range are we talking about here, Paul? It's uh, normally 50 plus, but we have had quite a few guys come through in their 40s, mm-hmm. prostate cancer. The youngest one that we've seen is 38. Gosh. Is that so, very, is that rare? It's, it is rare, it is rare, but it's, it was um, an extreme family history. Oh, okay. So um, the chap's father had died young from prostate cancer, his uncle had died from prostate cancer, he had a cousin who was going through prostate cancer. Mm. So um, the, the family circumstances were quite extreme. I mean, the, the chances, if you have a family history in any way, you take the one in eight to one in four for that alone. Um, and also, it's not just a case of your father or a male relative having had prostate cancer, certain breast cancers on the maternal side can actually also be influential. Yeah. Is, there, is there a genetic um, marker? So can you have your genome mapped, for example? Like you can, you can sort of identify certain alleles, I think the APOE4 uh, allele, when you have a genetic test, will say that you've got a propensity at a later stage to get Alzheimer's disease. If you have a genetic test, can you identify if you are at risk of pro- from prostate cancer? Um, I'm not aware of a genetic test for it, but I know that there's been mentions of it in certain publications recently about a, a genetic check, but I'm not aware of one at this moment in time. Mm. That's not to say there isn't one. Just on I mean, in breast in, in cancer, for instance, it seems to, uh, if it's in the family, it seems to be... It follows through from generation to generation, from from what I've seen on on on, on numerous occasions. Same with heart disease, John, as well. I think. Yeah, you know, you're always yeah. asked Diabetes. about your family history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a lot of uh, illnesses that will follow through, and prostate cancer certainly is one of those where, you know, if, if a family member has got it, you've got yeah. propensity to it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we know that uh, the 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 smoking causes all sorts of cancers, yeah. uh, and and yet this particular cancer has risen and the people that smoke are less so it's it's got yeah. to be something to do with something it has yeah so there's, there's research dietary. going on at the moment to sort of find out 
why prostate cancer is rising. Yeah. But I think it's more to do with um, lack of screening. The, the numbers are going up because you're not being screened. You know, COVID's the opposite. The numbers are going up because more people are being screened. Yeah. So we're finding it. But in this case, because people aren't being screened, it's not being found. Yeah. And so, you know, by the time it's found, it's a more advanced stage. It's more notable. Yeah. yeah. But getting getting screened, I think, as you said, Jim, is, is important. You know, be aware, learn what your prostate is, learn what the outcomes can be, watch for the symptoms, but don't trust the symptoms to lead you to having a screening because by that point, as we've said, the um, cancer's often too advanced to take advantage of the better treatment options. I mean, it's the messages as well that we need to get out there. I mean, I know that, uh, for instance, the Premier League football, I mean, they were had a big campaign in, mm. in, in voicing... Their, you know, the necessity to to be tested to make people aware of prostate cancer, and yet, and and talk sport. I remember talk sport yep. as well, which was uh, a few years back. They they had a continual advert running, rolling over, sort of encouraging men to do this, and it seems to have kind of stopped a little bit. The thing was, those campaigns were brilliant; they're essential. They were doing a great job, but there was no real explanation behind them. It was a case of prostate cancer. Badge on a, on a footballer's yeah. shirt. Yeah. yeah, be aware of prostate cancer, but there was nothing behind it of any substance to say what, what, what should I be looking for? What is it about this prostate cancer? What? How would it affect me? Yeah, um, yeah how should I be looking at it for other members of my family? It was it was a, one of those sort of dead end campaigns that yeah. had a great impact. But what do you do with well, it? Well, they had a great platform, but obviously, yeah, as you're saying, it didn't have any substance. Which is what we're going to try and do with our awareness campaign is to get people to be aware of more than just the symptoms. You know, most of these campaigns say, oh, be aware of the symptoms. As we've said before, the symptoms sometimes are too late. Mm. You know, prostate cancer can form to quite an advanced degree and you don't even know you've got it. I mean, I had a sizable tumour and I had no side effects or symptoms whatsoever. This is strong. And it's one of the cancers that's, if you caught it in the early stages, it's very, very easy to treat and eradicate. The statement is that it's one of the easiest cancers to treat if it's caught early. It's one of the... Most lethal if it's caught late. Right. So, yes, you've got to catch it early. Got to catch it early. It's, 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 it is a killer. You know, there's no question. Prostate cancer is a killer and it's yeah. a big killer. You know, it's killing one man every 45 minutes, as we've said. So it's got to be taken seriously. But it's, you know, in the early stages, symptomless. So it's a dilemma. How do we get past that point? How do we find out we've got prostate cancer? And that's just being aware of the fact you have a prostate and... You know, getting screened at the earliest opportunity. And and the, the situation that we find ourselves in now, um, in, you know, springtime 2021, post-COVID, doctors, we, we talked about surgeries not being open. Mm. How, how do you see the NHS moving forward with uh, prostate screening over the next six to 12 months? I don't think we're far enough down the road yet to know how that's going to impact. It's it's a worry. It, it really is. I mean, it was bad enough before COVID. So well, there'll be a huge backlog now, right? There is a massive backlog already. You know, it's already building up. But uh, the screening of prostate cancer worries me severely. I just don't know where it's going to head, which is uh, why we're following the developments in screening uh, quite closely at the moment. Um, and there are some interesting developments on the way. Uh, one in particular is a test which is very similar to the current covid flow tests where a drop of blood is put onto a device that then gives a reading as to the level of prostate cancer and whether you have it or not which is very accurate 
And also there is a new urine-based test, so just um, a dip test for urine that's put into a machine that reads the, the results. And they use biomarkers in the blood. They're both much more accurate than the PSA test currently is. And they eliminate the need for the invasiveness of a rectal examination. Um, and one of the things, once we've got past the point where we've got our focal suites deployed, what I'd love to see next for our charity is to look at the breast cancer screening units that are sat in car parks all around the country. Oh, yeah. Being used for two, three, four days a week. Mm. Get those other days with the better screening methods and get men into them. You know, not yeah. just for prostate, uh, for prostate cancer, but testicular cancers and other men orientated diseases mm. we need that same tri- um, screening urgency as we well have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Emergency, yeah hopefully within the next three to five years the screening methods will improve dramatically but i don't know what impact covid is going to have on the current status i mean the the organization for the testing <coughs> and everything for covid has actually shown that it can be done so hopefully you know in the future there will be the opportunity to actually say, well, we can do this with the cancer, we can do this mm. with other things as well. So it is, a, it could actually be, a, it could be a good thing in a, in, a, in the long term. It could, yeah. There's always new developments just around the corner. You yeah. don't know what's going to come up next. There's yeah. people working on wonderful, wonderful screening methods and treatment methods all the time. So yeah. As with the um, salvage HIFU, you know, which has now just become available, that's just something that's come out of HIFU as a treatment for prostate cancer. Yeah. It's now helping people with advanced cancers or with turning yeah. cancers. And I'm, I'm sure because of COVID, no one knows about it. It's, it's been a struggle, real struggle to get this information out there. Yeah. Every time we try to get the message out there, COVID comes up with some new twist and yeah. flattens it, basically. Yeah. yeah. But we're working hard. By going for some high-profile events in the coming months, um, I think we can get the message across and we can achieve our aims. So you started with the plan, you went to see Professor Ahmed. Yep. What happened next? He came on board as a patron. He was just so behind the idea of what we were going to do. He could see... Uh, he, he's one of those really good clinicians who looks at things with a patient's eye, not a clinician's eye. Yeah. Yeah, most... Not most consultants, that would be unfair, but a lot of consultants look at how a clinical outcome can be achieved. Yeah. And that's the focus. Whereas the professor has you know, built his whole career effectively around looking at how the patient will mm. view that treatment and what the outcome for them will be. So he's, that's why he's a focal therapy mm. nut, effectively. He just loves the concept of focal therapy because it lets people maintain their lifestyles. And how did he become involved in focal therapy? Uh, he's, he's a urologist, um, always been at the cutting edge of urology, works in Imperial College, which is a brilliant environment to be in. And... Um, it's just self-driven, I guess. You just drive yourself to be, to want to be doing better. And he's yeah. one of those people that has. I looked at his CV, actually. It's quite impressive. It is impressive, the isn't it? people he is. Yeah. For a relatively young man as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you launched in 2019 at the Houses of Parliament. We did. Uh, we actually launched, yeah, we the charity started in November 2018. Yeah. That's when I started yeah. running the concepts and the ideas and building the plan. We started the process of becoming a registered charity and achieved that in March of 2019. Then in July of 2019, um, Sir David Amos MP had become a patron of the charity and he hosted us for an official launch in the Jubilee Rooms in the Palace of Westminster, Houses of Parliament. Um, So the charity hit the headlines at that point. We had a phenomenal... 
that first year was it was a building year, and we built up a, a whole plan based on live events, mm-hmm. fundraising, um, all the usual stuff. Yeah. But based on my experience, past experience of large events, yeah, the plan was to launch that in fully in twenty twenty. I got to the beginning of twenty twenty, started the ball rolling, and I think we all know what came along and yeah, scuffed totally that idea, us, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. So last year, the 2020 became a survival year, really. You know, we just really have, we had a very good first year, achieved a lot. Last year was survival. But what we found was that with the pressure on the NHS, with the COVID side of things, men were struggling to get, to even see a GP. To yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I was going to yeah. say to you, if a man, I mean, I know from talking to you, uh, you you get a lot of calls from men. We do. Yeah, and, we, uh, we and and a man comes to you now in yeah. the middle of this pandemic or at, at the stage of the pandemic or the beginning of the pandemic. Says Paul, I need help. I'm anxious and I'm worried. I can't get the the, the advice and the and the prognosis and the, I, I, how, what do I do? We help to guide them to uh, pressurise their GP. Yeah, they have rights. So we send out a, an information pack to show how they can insist on getting that initial entry into the sort of treatment yeah. pathway, if you like. So that could be as simple as just trying to get to have a PSA test, taking that a step further to you know, digital examination. Yeah. It's, it's almost impossible. You know, GPs are not seeing people. You can't do a digital examination over a telephone or a video line. No. So we... we encourage them to, to put the pressure on to get to that next step. When they do actually manage to get to that next step and get the examination, if their symptoms are such that there is a cause for concern, yeah. we assist them to go directly to Professor Ahmed at the moment. I mean, bless the man, he hasn't turned away a single case that's been treatable so far. Yeah, he's brought amazing. them in from all over the country. Quite incredible. Yeah, it is. It, yeah, you just... Because in the early, in, in the early days of the pandemic, I mean, I, I wanted to get my ears syringed, yeah, and there was no way I could do that. The, the doctor I spoke to said, "Go on Amazon and buy a syringe," <laughs> and that was that. that no, it's true. That was a story. Yeah. And, and but for a for a doctor to uh, actually take on and, and carry on, was, uh, that must that's amazing. It that's is amazing. Yeah, no, uh, we do. Yeah, you know, we, we push everything that's a viable case. We we get their case notes. They usually go to their, their local hospital first. They'll have scans, they'll have a biopsy yeah. or whatever's going on. We have a secure email system that we use with Imperial College so everything is passed around as it should be within a medical environment. If the men agree to share their medical information with us, we pass it to Imperial. The team at Imperial will have a look at that and make a judgment on whether that case is viable for them. Do you, are, you, are you in regular contact with the professor? Yeah, yeah, we speak quite regularly, mostly yeah. on line yeah, emails yeah. and things but yeah. we do talk on occasions he's a busy man so it's easier to fire an email at him when he comes back when he can really handle it but no we, we we talk about patient cases and such like quite regularly um so we'll, we'll feed a case into him he'll then pick up take on make appointments they'll come into london if they're suitable mm. he'll treat them and that's what we're doing i wanted to ask a question about uh, the fact <clears throat> statistically black men mm-hmm. are more susceptible to prostate cancer is yeah, that, the that, the actual figure is one in eight men will will have prostate cancer diagnosed in their lifetime. One in eight yeah. in the UK. That works out as an adjustable statistic, if you like, because a white male is bang on one in eight, one in eight point three. Yeah, um, a black male yeah. is one in four. Why is that? We, we don't know. There's, there's research going on for it. It's like the COVID say. scenario, isn't it, with the BAME at the moment, where yeah. they're more susceptible to the, the symptoms, but it's 
there's no clear line defined reason for it at this moment in time. Asian men can be as high as one in thirteen, some are as high as one in twenty four, depending really? on national. Oh yes, quite quite. Diet seems to be some influence. Paul, uh, we, Paul, Jim, and I were talking about you know uh, what can you do to, yeah, to stop or, or yeah. prevent? Yeah, nothing um, really. It's one of those cruel little things where. A professor actually said to me at one point, if, if he pulled 100 men off the streets, yeah. 98 of them would have the tendency, tendency to head towards prostate cancer. They would have either early signs of prostate cancer, they would be genetically inclined towards prostate cancer. Yeah. So it, there's a high number, but in a lot of people it won't actually fully develop, it won't come out. Is it based on lifestyle, so potentially? Yeah, it's and not. It, lifestyle will be a factor, but it's not the cause. Right. So, not, go, so go back 20 years, 30 yeah. years... Was in comparison, uh, was there higher rates of prostate cancer? Oddly enough, prostate cancer is one of the few diseases that's increasing as we go along. It's still increasing now. It's in- yeah, six six times increase in yeah. men over fifty in the past twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it just a- doesn't make sense. It's, it's screening. I mean, breast cancer was in yeah. that same zone twenty years ago. Yeah. yeah, but because of the great work that charities have done and the NHS has done with breast cancer along the way, yeah. um, it's just slightly easier to diagnose and screen. That great work has meant that their, their rates are falling. Yeah. And in fact, prostate cancer is rising, whereas last year, for the first time, it overtook breast cancer as a killer. Yeah. So breast cancer numbers are coming down, we're going up and we overtook, so we are now the biggest killer. Of yeah, 2019 prostate cancer um, fatalities exceeded those for breast cancer, making it the single biggest killer of men. Cancer, uh, killer, yeah. One man dies every 45 minutes. Yep. That's frightening. That is scary, isn't it? Yeah. It's a big deal, isn't it? It is. I mean, yeah. I had no idea that these numbers were, were yeah. out there. It's one, something like one in every six or seven minutes or we get a diagnosis. Yeah. It's that scary. You know, this. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worry in men. I mean, it, it worries me. Yeah. Continually. And I've had two tests, but yeah. I'm continually conscious of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think it's, I think a lot of men do, you know, we talked about it. Well, I'm a bit of a prostrich, I've got yeah, to say. We were because, saying, uh, <laughs> yeah, <that makes>, uh, <laughs> to, to use Paul's uh, vernacular. Yeah. Well, it, it's a perfect... Yeah, I mean, I, it, it it never... It never yeah, until, don't be a prostrich. Until I met Paul, um, I, I didn't really give it any thought. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm alone in that. I don't think... I think there are probably quite a lot of blokes who just plod along singing a song and don't really yeah. even think about it. But when you start yeah. understanding these numbers, it's... It's something that you've got to get sorted, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. If we walked out in the street now and, and stopped five guys and asked them, what, what's your prostate? They would know. Almost certainly four of them, and maybe all five, wouldn't have a clue. Really? Seriously, you, you try it sometime, just as a test. Go. It's I a difficult know. question to ask. It's not something I'm still the bus stop, is it? I'm going straight down to Waitrose and <laughs> standing in the door. <laughs> Hence it's, the importance of your charity, Paul, because that, that brings to light, you know. I mean, these are numbers that I lifted off the website. It's incredibly informative. Well, here's an even more frightening statistic. At the moment, there are up to 12,000 men a year with early, low-grade or medium-grade prostate cancer who could benefit from focal therapy treatments. That's and, and massive, maintain their lifestyle. That is a massive that message. 12,000 men are being given the same treatment as men with advanced cancer. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's criminal. That's yeah. Wrong. It's so, so, so wrong. It's yeah, morally absolutely. wrong. So you said that, you know, 2019 was was the year that you launched and things were going really well. What what were the biggest learnings for you in 2019 when you set up the charity? What what were the things that sort of jumped out? The lack of awareness with men of prostate matters, anything to do with the prostate and prostate cancer and 
And th- this sort of scary acceptance that men have got when they walk into their local hospital and get told they've got prostate cancer to, to purely just accept what they're given, what they're offered. Yeah. And yeah. not question. Why would you question? They don't know. You know, they're, they're not being told at the point of diagnosis. Yeah. That there are other options. But, you know, we, we mentioned Cindy, your wife, earlier. So, obviously, Cindy's been an enormous support for you. Somebody uh, like Cindy, knowing Cindy, she, she would have been um, amazingly kind of close to you and supportive of you. Mm-hmm. In, in other women, men with wives and girlfriends and stuff like that, is it important to get the message out to them because they can make a difference in influencing yeah. the men? It's really strange. One of the... One clinician said to me at one time um, another urology guy who said that when they have a man attend for their diagnosis with their wife the wife is usually the one that goes get it out whatever we got to do just get that thing out get if he's got cancer get it out but they don't stop and think about the lifestyle implications uh-huh. and really they haven't got the knowledge to know there are other treatments out there that can actually save those lifestyles yeah. so just jumping in there just uh, some some more stats from the website 83% who have a prostatectomy suffer erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. six years after procedure. Yep. Three quarters are left with erectile dysfunction. Five to 25% long-term urine problems and incontinence. And five to 15% rectal problems, bleeding, loose stools, discomfort, all that kind of stuff. Yep. So with the traditional interventions, your lifestyle projections are pretty grim, aren't they? Well, yeah. Lifestyle is not really front and forth on those yeah. things. Um, Whereas HIFU... Well, focal therapies as a whole, um, we talk about HIFU, but focal therapy as a, a genre now is, is expanding. So there's the HIFU, which is the um, ultrasound. There's also cryotherapy, mm. which again is a focal therapy, and that's where they insert a, a really small needle into the um, prostate. And it, it uses... Um, liquid nitrogen literally to form a ball of ice at the end of it which they can they can actually shape this ball of ice to suit the tumor and it literally kills off the tumor so one end's using heat the other end's using cold they use cryotherapy quite a lot where with focal therapy because they insert the probe into your rectum the reach sometimes can't quite reach the top of the prostate and particularly if someone's got an enlarged prostate it won't reach those top most points so it won't reach the tumors so cryotherapy can go in and actually clean up those but there are other newer ones coming along now as well there's electroporation which again they put a small needle in and they electrocute effectively the the tumors and that's very promising that's probably a year or two years away and then there's another treatment which is a nucleic one which is radio ligands and that is way beyond my understanding but it's radioactive medicine that goes into the body and actually attaches itself to the cancer cells and then they activate it and it burns away the cancer cell and within eight hours it's gone from your body so so as a result of setting up this charity you you've become somewhat of an expert on we're attracting experts uh, you're attracting (laughs) well that's that's fantastic though paul in itself isn't it all these companies are finding us are they really and selecting us as a charity to go forward with their um right this second we've got um one of the charity one of the companies called boston scientific who are the cryotherapy, the cryotherapy yeah. people, yeah. And you met them, John, didn't you, at launch? Yeah. They are just about to put together an all-party parliamentary group. Yeah. And they, Cause, they're cause funding it. They flew over, didn't they? they? No, that was Sonicare. Oh, that, that was, was the Sonicare. people. They yeah, flew yeah. in from America yeah, yeah. to join us for the launch. But um, Boston Scientific have put this together. They've come to us in the first instance as being the only focal therapy charity. Right. And they're pulling on us now as their, their resource to 
get the message out there to compile the materials that are needed. Yeah. But we've also now proved to them that we can bring these other companies in. So Sonicare, the Radio Ligand, the mm. Electroporosis, we can bring these people in and add strength to this all-party yeah. parliamentary group. So we will be quite a lead. Influential. Like yeah. Definitely. But yeah. Um, yeah, these companies are providing the tools that we need to achieve better outcomes for prostate cancer. But the pandemic has literally, must, has oh, it, has it really slowed it has, the momentum? It's completely and utterly brought the whole thing to a halt. I mean, most treatments in the NHS now are on hold. You know, there's hardly a yeah, treatment that's running as it normally should do. Yeah. Chemotherapy and some of the more important ones seem to be running fairly well. Yeah. But the prostate cancer treatments are on the back burner. Really? Sadly. One of the things that can be taken into account with um, the likes of HIFU and such like as well, yeah. because this procedure is one day, you come in and you're in a little suite within the hospital yeah. and you don't interact with the rest of the hospital. You're not being taken off to surgery. You're not being taken off to the radio um, therapy suite. It's the most COVID-friendly treatment that you could have. Yeah. You're in and out. You recover at home. You're not interacting with the rest of the hospital. Yeah. It's a nice, tight environment for them to keep safe and clear with the COVID. So it, it's another reason why this should be getting looked at and taken more seriously. I'm interested in, you know, you've been diagnosed, you're going in for your treatment, and how how do how do you deal with the fear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, everybody's different. Yeah. Everybody's completely different. I, I, I don't know. I'm a bit of a weirdo. I've got a sort of an analytical mind that sort of tries to work out how to get the best outcomes out of things mm-hmm. rather than sitting and moping. I mean, I was a nightmare really because when I was diagnosed, I didn't want anyone to know. But in my case, it wasn't because I was embarrassed by the procedures or the fact that I've got prostate cancer, I, d- I still wanted to be able to walk into a room and just be me. Yeah. I didn't want yeah. people coming out and going, oh, Paul, how are you? you know, yeah. How's the cancer? And it was right up until past treatment. And you didn't know, did you, after the treatment? No. Yeah. That's, um, I was actually going through it and having it done. No. So, Are there men who phone up the charity who are scared? Yeah, I get all sorts. You know, I get some people who've, like me, done their research and they've found us as a result of that research and they're straight down the middle. They know what they want to do. As long as their um, diagnosis fits the bill, then we can help them. Mm. Some people, I've, I've I've had them in tears, and I'll tell you what, I've been in tears a couple of times as well. Oh, really? It's a tough gig. It is a tough gig, talking to people about this. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. I mean, obviously we're not going to mention their names, but we, I, we yeah. have mutual oh, yes. uh, associates that have come to you, haven't they? Yeah. And, and yeah. yeah. So and one whose life was saved because of that. And it's, I'm not trying to... No, no. Trumpets here. He no. had a particularly complicated uh, diagnosis yeah. that wasn't being taken into account yeah. at his hospital, which would have been a surgical outcome. And it would have been dangerous in the nth degree if he'd gone through that route. When he finally got to Imperial College yeah. and they looked at what, what they were facing, that cryotherapy was his only route, effectively. Right. It was the only way for him to come out. Gosh. So how, how how do you see with the <laughs> our, our sort of path out of the pandemic in the next year? Um, I don't I don't have any solutions for the pandemic. All I'm looking at personally is we have around the country a group of trained consultants. They've all been through the high through route, either under Professor Ahmed or others in the in the industry, mm-hmm. and they have the knowledge, the skill, and the ability to deliver focal therapies so our driver now is for the next 18 months certainly by the end of 2022 
yeah. is to deliver at least six focal therapy suites into these guys in these hospitals yeah. set around the country to right. just give access. So whatever happens in the general prostate cancer treatment world in yeah. terms of radiotherapy and surgery, we're not, we're not on that what's journey. The, what's the situation internationally with HIFU? Is it, is, it, is it used in other countries? It is, yes. It's been, been approved in America, and it's, America's mostly private medicine anyway, isn't yeah. it? But they have really grasped it, and it's, it's growing massively out there. Fantastic. Um, quite a few European countries are using it. Yeah. It's been accepted by medical insurers, so you can do it on your medical insurance now as well. Oh, that's important. Yeah, and, and this is another thing we're working on, is trying to get the insurers to be aware of this, because for them it's a much cheaper route. Yeah. Far cheaper route to treat somebody. So yeah, it's, it's, it's growing, it's growing. We, we are slow. The UK is one of the slowest areas yeah. to get this thing rolled out. But for charity, for the charity, obviously, uh, I know from talking to you and being involved in some respects, the events and, and the, the kind of... Uh, messages you are trying to get out have obviously we've they've been curtailed but give us an update on on where we are with that right um we are now about to launch um a couple of big campaigns this year we've rethought and gone virtual so we've had to look at the virtual world in terms of events so um we've got a guinness world record in the offing which is we've managed to find out that the guinness world record will actually accept virtual records now so, um, without going into too much detail, we're having software written which will create a virtual balloon race, and we're going for a record of two hundred fifty thousand balloons for the first one. And this balloon race, this is this software is so clever; it works with Google Maps, so you can track your balloon, you can set the parameters for your balloon. It's right. influenced by the real-time weather, and it runs over a week to ten-day period where you launch all the balloons together from any given point in the world. Right, and you buy your balloon and you can monitor it. What a great and, idea! So that's been written right at the moment, this moment in time. That's Who's that, doing that for you, Paul? Um, someone that I know from um, the media world wow. who's got a very good contact, who's a programmer. Um, it's been done on a smaller scale elsewhere. There are other versions of this out there. Yeah. But uh, this had to be Bespoke. big because it, we're going for Guinness World Records and it could end up any number. So that is the, the PR end of what we're trying to do. Yeah. And lying behind that will be a campaign called One in Eight. All right. So very appropriate. What we're thinking there is the there are just over 24 million male adults in the UK. Mm. If we can get one in eight of those to donate one pound, mm. that's three million pounds. Yeah. That pays for our six suites. Now, that is not a big challenge. No. So we're hoping that we can actually achieve far more than the one in eight. Yeah. Simple figures. You know, if you can go, for, if you boil things down to the simplest of figures, one in eight men give one pound. It's all online. You know, if you give five pounds, you'll be a one in eight and you'll get a badge or whatever to, to mark it. Yeah, yeah. So those are the two big elements that are just being put together at the moment. That's the bleary eyes because we're working 24-7 yeah, yeah. on these. I was going to say, how much, How much? clearly you, you work very hard for prostate. Yeah. How much of your time is taken up? It's full-time. The, is it full-time, full-time plus? Yeah, it's, it's, there's nothing else in, apart from grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> Major part, though. Yes. <laughs> so, no, we work it's, you know, five days a week plus weekends plus whatever it takes, so. But we've got some really good volunteers starting to come together now around us with ambassadors and such, like John being one of those, and hopefully you too, Jim. Yes, I'll help out as much as I can. Yeah. Good, yeah. But yeah, we are, we are, we're gathering some, some good celebrity support now. Oh, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Some important uh, uh, professionals as well, as we say, in the industry who are coming together behind us. Anybody that you can mention? 
Not right now, because we're still in discussions with some of them, but yeah. um, one we do have is Peter Duncan. Oh, yes. Who's the former Blue, Blue Peter. Peter. Yeah, yeah. He took over from John Noakes as yeah, the action yeah. man. Yeah. And Peter went through the same journey as me with Professor Ahmed. Oh, did he? Only a year later, yes. And he's exactly the same as me. He's fine up and about and firing on all cylinders. Yeah. So um, he's a great advocate. He's one of our ambassadors now. Um, we've just had a couple of campaigns where he's been involved. So he'll be playing a bigger part as we go along. So people listening, how do they get involved? If, you, if some you know men are out there, women are out there, they want to get involved and want to contribute. What would you what would you say? This is your first port of call to donate. Yeah, to the website. To the website, yeah. which is prost eight p r o s t eight yeah. number eight dot org dot uk, and the eight being obviously a play on words for prostate, yes. but it's also the one in eight. Yes, and, you've got, a, and you've got your great badge. Could you explain your badge and how that? It's, a blue ribbon in the shape of an eight, as opposed to being open at the bottom, as most charity ribbons are. Yeah. It obviously represents the one in eight again. So yeah. it's the eight from the prostate. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. I was interested in the um, the peer-reviewed white paper that was released in Oh, yes, January. I don't remember yeah. that, yeah. Mm. Um, because that looked like it, there's an awful lot of work gone into that yeah. from Imperial College. Yes, it proved um, the efficacy of focal therapies at six, seven and eight year periods mm. and showed that the, the the survival rates are equal to and surpassing the more radical treatments. Yeah. Um, but the lifestyle outcomes, as we said earlier, are yeah. phenomenally, much, much phenomenally better, much, much better. But also, just one other thing that came out of that, the Professor Ahmed has been very actively working on focal therapy at the next level now, which is what they call salvage therapy. And... Men who've had radiotherapy treatments in the past and their cancer has returned, which is not an unusual thing, sadly, five, ten years later, you can get a recurrence. They, up to now, had one option, either massive hormone treatment, which can only happen for so many years, yeah. or surgery. And surgery is always tricky because... Of the damage. It, the, the radiotherapy glues everything together, so mm. you, know, you have to take out more to get what you're trying to get to. Ah, okay. But HIFU has now proved to be almost 100% successful in treating recurring cancers without, once again, without the lifestyle and radical well, damage. That's fantastic news. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's other areas this is going to slip into. And what um, what effect has that white, white paper had? Because, you know, it was, it was re- released January 21? It was, sadly... It's COVID. I know, it's, that's what I was going to so, say. so badly overshadowed. You know, we were struggling. We had a professional uh, media agency behind it trying to help us get it out there. And they were they were delighted with what they got. Yeah. It, was, it was reasonable. But COVID just wipes everything off, off the map at the moment. It's yeah. just so sad. If there's anybody yeah. sort of wanted to do some research on, on that, is, is there a place? It's on our can, website. It's on your website, yeah. so they can go and research yeah. on your website. You can find that, yeah. The yeah. white paper's there, the... Latest developments are there, the, con- the contact details are there, and if people want to give us a call, we can help them through the journey. Yeah. But we need to be able to help. There's 12,000 men a year, mm. plus there's up to 10,000 men with recurring cancer that can now be helped, and that the, the kit that's out there in the NHS can't cope with it, so we've got to get these new suites deployed. Yeah. So we need, we need help to do that. Yeah. We need some, some big corporate help, ideally, and for our campaigns this year to run. And so, so if there are some... Big corporates who stumble upon this podcast. Yeah. How can they get in touch? Once again, just come through the websites, prostate.org.uk, oh. and um, email me. Perfect. Yeah. And also, um, I, and going 
back to what you said earlier about men understanding that what a prostate is, not knowing mm. that they, they have one. That's a, that's quite an extraordinary. It is. Uh, message that, that we need to get out there as well. With breast cancer, as I said, you know that's that's far in advance where we are. But breasts are pretty obvious things. You know, they, you can see what they are and where they are and yeah. what their function is. The prostate is just hidden away. It's an innocuous little gland. Yeah, sits just underneath your bladder. Yeah, and is wrapped around your urethra. So it's yeah stuck in the best place possible to cause as much discomfort and damage as you can. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Paul, I, I'm. Really, really pleased that you've come in today, and I, I'm, well, thank I'm you for so, the time. I'm so grateful that we've had this opportunity to um, do a bit of a deep dive because I've certainly learnt a whole load of stuff that I didn't know before, and um, really appreciate you coming on uh, the podcast. Um, thank you very much. Grateful for the platform. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please like subscribe and tell your friends. For further information, please visit us at www.needlefishgroup.co.uk.